Welcome to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Your host is Michelle Beck. Our show is here to help breast cancer patients, survivors, thrivers, their friends, and family by providing resources, support, and inspiration they can use right now. Here is your host, Michelle Beck. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. My name is Michelle Beck. I'm a two-time, 10-year survivor of breast cancer. I work at Breast Friends of Oregon, a nonprofit which helps women and anyone going through cancer to ensure that they don't go through it alone. It's really important to us. Uh, when I have time, which isn't very often, you can find me on social media at I Never Liked Pink. And that's also where I do some writing occasionally. But today I'm super excited because we are talking about a topic that I don't know a lot about of, but it's so important. We are going to talk about either whether it's termed going flat, staying flat after mas- after mastectomy, or even having explants to kind of go back to, to nothing for a variety of reasons. And I'm not saying nothing, that's the wrong term, a beautiful <laughs> flat aesthetic closure. So my guest today is Katrin Van Dam. Uh, she is the author of Flat and Happy, Mastectomy and Flat Closure, a practical, no, personal practical guide and <laughs> longest subtitle in the universe. It is, it is quite, <laughs> it is quite a, a tongue twister, but it is really important to get all of that information out there. It's part memoir, part amazing information, definitions, personal stories of many women who've gone through it. And she's worked with a couple collaborators on this. Um, she has been in major media for years. She's a author of a young adult novel called Come November which I'm going to check out because I love young adult novels at 51. Uh, Me too. They, they, really, they really sing to my teenage heart that I still have. Totally. So today we are going to go talk about the ins and the outs, uh, ins and outs of being flat. So Kat, welcome. Thank you for being here today. Michelle, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited for this conversation. Well, good. I'm glad. So tell us a little bit about yourself, the non-cancer parts. Mm. I, I mean, you already did such a good job of introducing me. I don't know that I have much left to say. I live in New York City with my extremely excellent husband. Um, we met as actors in an earlier life, so we like to go to the theater a lot and travel and eat. Um, my acting career did not launch, so I ended up in children's media and have been in that industry for about 30 years now, and I write on the side. So as you said, my Young adult novel came out in 2018, and a uh, little less than six months later, I was diagnosed and then started working on this book that just came out in May. Yeah, it's like life is going good, everything is fine. You know, we've got professional and personal success, and then bam, here yeah. comes the cancer. Yeah. So give us the cliff notes of your cancer because I know we have so much more to talk about. Oof. Yeah, it's it's so hard to consolidate that into just a tight little, here's what I'll say. I am a poster child for early detection. So when I, I talk about the importance of early detection, I don't just mean getting your annual mammogram. I mean, belt and suspenders, throw everything at it because my cancer was not detected by a mammogram. It was detected several months after I'd had a apparently uninteresting mammogram by my primary care doctor. Um, and this was not the first time that she had diagnosed me with a cancer because when I was in my 20s, the same doctor had found thyroid cancer. So when she found this lump in my left breast, I took that pretty seriously, uh, went immediately to get a biopsy that was, uh, it came back positive for uh, IDC. So then in conversations with the breast surgeon that she sent me to, we were talking about probably lumpectomy with radiation and 
the the thing that this breast surgeon said that I'm forever grateful for was, you know, let's just be super cautious about this. Let's have you go in for an MRI. Just make sure there isn't anything else going on. And it turned out that I'm the apparently like 1% because I'm an overachiever. Um, that in every has, aspect. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, that has uh, bilateral, you know, sort of independent cancers on both sides. So at that point, switched the plan to uh, bilateral mastectomy. Um, I had a great outcome. Uh, lymph nodes were clear. So I've been really fortunate in having um, not to do chemo or any of the really, really difficult uh, treatment options. It's just been, I say, just, you know, hormone therapy. Yes. And the same, I've, I've been through it twice and no chemo. So I, I kind of jokingly yeah. say I'm a cancer unicorn and <laughs> um, I, I'm incredibly blessed even with everything that I have gone through because um, our sisters who've gone through this and have to do the chemo and yeah. the long-term infusions, yeah, um, it just piles on the, the shit, excuse my French, but yeah, uh, there, there, this is a cussing. Okay. Show. So. Oh, good. I was going to ask. <laughs> I'll try, I'll try to modulate, modulate a little bit. From my uh, okay, occasionally it does come out. I, you know, F cancer is one of my favorite phrases ever. Sure, yeah. Um, so you obviously chose to have all of your breast tissue removed and yep. you went with something called an aesthetic flat closure. Now, how, you know, you can't just say flat closure because in reading your book, I know there's a lot of things that can happen, but what in, in an ideal world, how do you define an aesthetic flat closure? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's, uh, it's a very timely question because actually at the time of my surgery, there was no such thing as aesthetic flat closure. This is a very recently adopted term and it is still only spottily adopted. So in some circles, like among women who have just had this procedure, I think there's an assumption that the term has always existed, but it was actually only added to the National Cancer Institute's Dictionary of Terms in 2020. Uh, because of the efforts of some uh, advocates in the flat community. So you were um, really on the forefront of this. Well, I think that it's been happening all along, but the idea that there are aesthetic considerations that need to be taken into account when you're doing mm -hmm. a flat closure is relatively new. And, uh, you know, th there are a lot of women, because only about 50% of women who have mastectomies actually have breast mount reconstruction. Um, there are a lot of women who do go flat, but there wasn't always a lot of conversation around, well, what are the expectations for that? So aesthetic flat closure means you don't just, okay, let me, let me go back one step. When you think about a breast, it is a three-dimensional form, right? Mm -hmm. So now you're taking that envelope of skin and you're removing all of the stuffing and even if you don't have very large breasts, that's leaving you with a whole bunch of fat and skin and tissue that needs to be dealt with in some way, right? And if the surgeon is a good surgeon, they will excise the, what they call redundant skin, and they will um, create an incision pattern that will allow for um, a nice, smooth, clean, tidy closure, as opposed to you see some really sloppy closures where they've left what are called dog ears, dog ears. bags mm -hmm. of extra skin. So aesthetic flat closure is basically a reconstruction of the chest wall. That's how it's defined. And it's taking into account all the steps that need to be done to ensure a clean, you know, trying to eliminate concavity when possible so that you have a nice, smooth, plain 
to your chest wall. I, I feel like as you're describing it, it's like the perfect wrapping of a present. Yeah. You're, you're, you're taking everything that is there and just making it look beautiful because even if you don't want to have breast reconstruction you still want to have something that you can look at and be pleased with thank you yes i mean and you would think that would be obvious right but i see pictures every day of women who like last week went in for surgery and were given this messy sloppy thing and it's not just a cosmetic issue like there's serious discomfort if you've got yes. these big flaps of skin under your arms there's chafing and rubbing and you can't wear certain clothes so it's terrible for your self-esteem so it's very important that doctors in particular and also patients know to ask for this um, so that we hold doctors to a higher standard 100%. And we know you have gone through this, but you also wrote the book with two collaborators. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing because they have different medical knowledge than you. And so tell us a little bit about them so we can give them credit as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they deserve a lot of credit. Um, so my realization early on was I'm a writer, I'm a good writer, and I have firsthand experience of this, but I am not a scientist. I'm not a journalist. I'm not somebody who can speak knowledgeably about some of the like really detailed medical stuff that needed to be in the book. Um, so quite early on, I got introduced to Camelia Lawrence, who is a wonderful breast surgeon out of Hartford, Connecticut. And she was my partner from the beginning stages. We started with just doing interviews together so I could, you know, get the, the basic framework and then she was reviewing things as I was writing them and giving feedback on them so that I could make sure that everything was accurate. And I just really wanted to be sure that I, I wanted the name on the cover for legitimacy, but I wanted that interaction because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't misstepping. And I realized that it wasn't just a medical question. It was also like a, an emotional question. There are therapists who specialize in working with cancer patients and I did not have that background so I thought okay I actually need a second advisor I was lucky to get introduced to Wendy Myers who's a licensed clinical social worker out of Pittsburgh and she was my uh, clinical emotional support advisor for the book and really like made sure that I was always thinking about the whole person and not mm -hmm. just the you know the corporeal aspects because breast cancer really does affect us so much physically and emotionally. Yeah. It breasts are so much a part of by society's terms, something that makes us a woman and a choice, a very definite choice to no longer have breast mounds and have a flat closure is something that really can affect your emotions one way or the other. So really important to have all of this information in there. Now you said you, you finished treatment, you finished surgery and you started to write the book. Was that just like an, an automatic, I'm going to share my experience here goes. Uh, almost. I mean, when I was diagnosed, because I'm a reader, my first impulse was, well, let me see if somebody has written the book that I need, which is going to tell me how to know if I am going to be happy as a flat person. And what do I need to know? How am I going to dress myself? Um, you know, how is this going to impact my relationships? I had a lot of questions and there wasn't a resource out there that answered all of those questions. And so once I'd come through it, uh, sort of without much of a, uh, a network to, to help me figure that out, 
I did get admitted to, there's a bunch of very vital uh, communities on Facebook, as you probably know, including ones for women who have gone flat. I got admitted into those groups, started learning more, started understanding more about what the women who were explanting had gone through, because I had sort of dodged that, um, the, the complications that some women who have reconstruction face. And I thought, there's really a need for this resource that I didn't have, and maybe I better go create that resource. Now, when you were first diagnosed and given your pathology and your stage and all that, did you ever consider reconstruction? What made you think, I, I just, I want to go flat? Uh, I had an instinct. And I, I think it's actually, as I, as I look back on it, Tig Notaro very kindly I love provided, Tig. Yeah, I love Tig. <laughs> provided a blurb for the book. And I think that Tig's experience probably was somewhere in the back of my mind because I had seen her show One Mississippi and there's a very important scene there where she sort of confronts her flat chest in the mirror. So I knew that that was a thing. And when the discussion turned from lumpectomy with radiation to mastectomy with reconstruction, and that was the way it was presented, like, it, like it's yes. a unit. Like mm -hmm. no it goes together in. because it's assumed uh -huh. that you're going to want to do reconstruction. And that's, that's definitely a big problem in the medical community. Big problem. So when, when that happened, um, I, I had this immediate instinct of, I don't think I want that. And part of it is just, I have my own sort of feelings about authenticity and what authenticity means to me. And I want to be really clear that like, my particular feelings about this are only for me. I have nothing but respect for any woman's choice to have reconstruction. Marks. Right. You're so, not reconstruction shaming anyone. No, it's a no, very personal choice. Very mm -hmm. personal choice. What I'd want is just for doctors to offer that choice and for women to know that they have that choice. So anyway, my doctor was very much in the women are just happier if they have reconstruction school. And we can talk for hours about why she believes that. But um, she insisted that I go talk to a plastic surgeon, even though I had told her I was pretty sure I didn't want to have reconstruction. And that's not a bad impulse. I think more knowledge is always better. So I went and I talked to her and she was wonderful. She did not in any way pressure me. And some women do get a lot of pressure from plastic surgeons. She was not that, that kind of person. She talked to me about deep and the fact that for me, because I needed to have both breasts replaced, I didn't... This is the first time I ever did not have enough belly flap. I was just going right? to say you did not qualify for a deep flap. I can, I can tell you that right now. Yeah. And it's funny. I didn't qualify for it either at the time because yes, I had, you know, excess baggage everywhere, mm -hmm. but not in my, my belly area where they would have needed to take it. And right. so for me, if reconstruction, it was implants because implants. I didn't have yeah. enough of the extra flint, right. extra stuff. So sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. So we talked about implants as well. And she took me through the whole thing. She showed me saline versus silicone and what the advantages and disadvantages of both were. And she talked about the expansion process. And I thought, ah, that sounds really painful. And um, she talked about the fact that they are not lifetime devices and that because I was on the younger side of things at 51, I would probably have to have them removed multiple times. And I came out of that thinking, uh, yeah, no, my impulse here is exactly right. This is not for me. And so you, you chose to go flat. You're, you're preparing for this. You knew you're going to do it. Did you do any kind of a, a goodbye to your breasts or any rituals before <laughs> your surgery? I did. I did. Uh, there were a couple things that I did. I did a little photo shoot. Oh, I did that as well. Top mm -hmm. of photo shoot. And I wasn't sure if I was going to care about that ultimately, but I thought, well, 
you don't know until it's you're already too late to do it. So you might as well give it a try. And they're beautiful pictures. And I, I look at them now and I think, huh, yeah, look at that. I had breasts once. Uh, you know, it, it did not turn out to be a hugely meaningful gesture. I did throw myself a party. Nice. And that was awesome. You know, there's a Always lot of good to have parties for whatever reason. Yeah. And in the flat community, it's like a ta-ta to the ta-tas or a bye-bye boobies. Mine was called so long and thanks for the memories. And everybody <laughs> brought food, uh, breast shaped food. That's hard to say. Um, it turns out cheese is the primary food source that gets molded into breast forms. If you're ever wondering. Okay. Cheese and a lot of laughter. And that was super important because that's such an important coping strategy for me is to surround myself with community and to laugh a lot. That is so amazing. I want to talk, we're going to go out for a break here in just yeah. a minute, but I wanted to start really digging into the book. And in the book, you really do spend a lot of time talking about the pros and the cons of different reconstruction, reconstructive techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, even uh, something that I was not familiar with sensation sparing mastectomies, which yeah. um, not an option for women who go flat, but why did you really spend the time on all of the options when kind of the book is flat and happy. Yeah. Well, I think for most people coming to the decision of whether you're going to have reconstruction or not is a process. You don't just wake up in the morning of your diagnosis and say, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to go flat. You need to go through a, a, a process of educating yourself. And so I wanted to make sure that all of the questions that a person could have on this journey would be answered, including ones that might not lead to a flat closure. Understood. And on that note, we are going to dig more into it after we come back from a break. So listeners, if you or a friend need our services, please go to breastfriends.org and check out patient programs to see what we can do for you. If you would like to donate to help us on our mission, you can do that on our website. There's a donate button or text BF radio to 41444. So stay with us. We will be back in a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444. Or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. 
To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck. This is Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Today, my guest is Kat Van Dam, author of Flat and Happy. And we were just talking about that book and the ins and outs of really the detail she's put in. And it has a lot of amazing medical knowledge in it, which is so important when you're really choosing what type of mastectomy outcome you would like. But the book is actually very it's warm and relatable because there's so many stories of women in there who tell their own personal stories, honestly, the, the good and the bad there, I was reading last night and there was one woman who was like, yeah, I went flat and it just wasn't for me. <laughs> and, and then, but there, there's also the ones who are like, oh, wow, this is perfect. This was what I wanted. You know, no one wants cancer, but you have to make the best of it and to feel comfortable in your body. So when, when you were working on the book, Kat, did you have like anyone specific in mind mm-hmm. or what, what was your ultimate goal with, you know, a specific reader that you were working for? Yeah. Um, I actually, I want to just say, Michelle, that the woman who you were mentioning, who said this, I'm just not happy with the result. I just saw that she is having revision surgery in two weeks. And I'm so happy to read that because the reason that she's not happy with the result is what we were talking about before. She was left with a terrible outcome where she has these massive side boobs and she can't wear any clothes. So mm-hmm. um, it wasn't so much that if she had gotten the aesthetic flat closure she asked for, she would have been unhappy. It was more that they botched her surgery. Um, anyway, so I'm very happy to know that that's getting fixed. So who was the reader that I had in my mind? Honestly, it was me before I went through it all. It was the person I was when I was diagnosed. I was scared and I was like, I was both desperate for information and completely overwhelmed with information. And so I was looking for a good friend who could help me navigate all of that decision-making without freaking me out. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned the tone and I do want to give some credit for that to both my editor and my designer because I feel like they both had a a very important role in making sure that this book feels not clinical but friendly and Mm -hmm. like something that you can just kind of dip into and that it's not going to make you feel like you're not understanding what's going on or like you're bored. It's a it's a, it's a nice tool that way. And that's what I wanted it to be. It's also why I included all those checklists. A lot of the chapters have a checklist of questions to ask your doctor, because that was something that I really wished that I had had, because you spend so much time thinking, what am I not remembering? What am I not thinking to ask? And so to just have that taken care of mm-hmm. allows you to focus on everything else, knowing that you've got the basics covered. Whenever I speak to someone who's recently diagnosed, I tell them literally keep a notebook or a memo on your phone Mm -hmm. to whenever you think of those questions, put them down of the night, right? So you're waking up to think, Oh God, I need to add that to my list. Because when you go into the office to speak with your surgeon, literally there's nothing else in your brain and you're like, and you want to be a good patient. So you, you don't ask a lot of the questions that you need to know the answers to. And that's one of the things we'll get to later, the importance of being your own advocate, which is something that I talk about a lot on this podcast. And we have to break out of the, oh, I'm going to be the good patient and I'm going to trust yeah. everything my doctor says because you are the most important person. Your doctor's feelings 
mm-hmm. are not important. Not it relevant. Is, no, really yeah. not. Um, one of the things that I also loved in the book, as I mentioned, was the stories mm-hmm. of they're just, you know, a couple little paragraphs about women telling their own stories. And you had mentioned doing interviews. So I'm sure these are real people that yeah. you have talked to. Yeah, yeah. I, those are, I think, my favorite part of the book, honestly. I was very concerned with not having this just reflect a single perspective. I, I am, you know, I come from my particular background. I am bilaterally flat, so I am not a uni. I am not somebody who has experienced dating while flat. I don't wear prostheses. Um, I'm not unhappy with my closure, right? But those experiences are very real for a lot of women. And so I wanted to make sure that I captured those in the book. And so I, I knew that I would need to tap into a larger community. So um, there are, I think, 16 women who I interviewed for the book and the, the little personal narratives that I included are often, as much as possible, I tried to actually use their words verbatim, but mm-hmm. it was definitely a little bit of condensing, moving things around and editing to tell a concise story, all with them you know, providing feedback through sometimes multiple stages, phases of, of review until they were happy with them. Sure. And one of the things uh, I do want to touch on is there is a woman in there who talks about breast implant illness, which yep. has been getting a lot more coverage in the news lately. And I, I know a woman who had went through that for years and they, they couldn't figure out what it was. And then she finally yep. had, um, we call them explants where you go in, you mm-hmm. take out your implants and it, she's a much happier person now. How did you, um, cause like a lot, a lot of the times these symptoms, doctors can't figure it out yeah. and they just kind of have to look like, Oh, what is foreign in your body that might be causing these problems? Right. Right. Which is backwards. I mean, I feel very strongly. And one of the things that, you know, is on my personal platform is that for doctors who are putting implants in women's bodies, it should be again, an affirmative conversation of these are things that can go wrong with this. And these are symptoms that you need to be aware of so that you can be on the lookout, not paranoid, but just being attentive to what your body is telling you, because it's possible. doesn't happen a lot, but it happens occasionally that a person's body does not want these foreign objects in there. And when you start seeing symptoms of that, you need to know what they are. That is not what happens currently. I'd love to see that be the future state of things. Patty, who is the woman you referenced, her story, gosh, it was the last one that I pulled into the book. And it's to me, it's the most important story in the book. So I'm just so grateful that I happened to be on Facebook one day when she posted, she had just had her surgery. And so she posted a couple of before pictures and then some after pictures from, I'm telling you, it was less than a week later. And I looked at her face and I thought, holy crap, it is so visible, the difference in the, the amount of inflammation that she was carrying around in just a week's time. So <clears throat> I reached out to her and I said, I'm working on this project. Would you be interested in being interviewed? And at first she was like, yes, I'd be happy to do that. And then I gave her some more information about the project. And she had a little bit of a <sighs> moment of, listen, I am not flat unhappy. I am angry. Mm-hmm. I had 17 years of symptoms, which went undiagnosed, oh, oh. and I am, you know, still coping with the loss of my breasts. And I'm not ready to put a happy face on this. And so I don't think I can participate in the project. I read that and I thought, okay, that's, that's totally that's fair. understandable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And at the same time, I, so I wrote back to her. I said, I, I completely get where you're coming from. 
You have every right to be angry because what happened to you is enraging. I want you to know this book is not about like putting an artificially happy face on anything. The reason that I wanted you to be included in the book is because your experience could help so many other people who are going through this recognize, oh, it's not me. I'm not crazy because doctors tell women this is just in their heads. You know, they say, oh, it's a social media hoax. They say all kinds of nonsense. So I, I managed to pull her back in and she's a total trooper. And she was like, all right, let's do this. And it was hard for her, but she, you know, we sat for a couple of hours and she shared her whole story with me. And it's a doozy. I mean, she mm-hmm. had every symptom in the book, including, thank goodness, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I say, thank goodness, because it was in a Facebook group for Hashimoto's that someone said to her, well, don't you have implants? This is very strongly associated with breast implant illness. And she was like, breast implant illness? I've never heard of that. Light bulb. She goes mm-hmm. on, exactly. She goes online, she Googles the symptoms and she falls out because it's every symptom that she has been telling doctors about for 17 years. So, you know, when she had her explant surgery, they disappeared practically overnight. She had been unable to work. She's back in a full-time job. Her body was debilitated. She is back exercising. She's working out. She's like trying to get her life back, but she's still really pissed about losing those 17 years, which by the way, was 100% preventable because she did not want reconstruction in the first place. She got hooked into it. But 17 years ago, this is what they did. It was pretty much automatic. But it's not just 17 years ago. It's still happening. Still happening. And I... I think I probably went in saying I want reconstruction, but like, and I love my plastic surgeon, adore her, love her, want, want to be friends with her and have wine with her. But <laughs> she, I do not ever remember talking about illness symptoms, implant illness syndrome. I don't think they bring them up. And in fact, I know that to be true because in a recent uh, study that I was reading, a very small percentage of doctors actually talk about complications of reconstruction. They really focus just on the benefits. So we have to be our own advocates. Um, And we're going to get, I had one more question before I get to the advocacy part. What in the book, what was the hardest chapter for you to write and, and put out there? Was it something personal? Mm -hmm. Um, Putting things out that are personal is not hard for me. I'm, I'm an oversharer. So oh, that's me too. That's my issue. favorite word. I'm an oversharer. <laughs> Much to my um, husband's dismay. <laughs> yes, mine too. Mine too. Bless his heart. Um, there were different chapters were difficult for different reasons. So some of the stuff that was like technical and medical in nature, where I felt way out of my depth and I had to do a ton of research and with like wading through these scientific papers, that was hard just from a purely intellectual level. The chapter that I struggled with the most is the final chapter, which is called the politics of reconstruction. Mm. And that's where I wanted to talk about the patriarchy and how we've come to this place of women being pressured into a procedure that they don't want. Mm -hmm. Not women who are choosing this of their own volition, but women who are getting pushed into it. And the reason that it was such a struggle was that I, of course, have a bias. And my bias was showing all over the place. And so Wendy Myers, the, the social worker I worked with on the book, kept having to say to me, Kat, you're Bring it back a little bit. You're going to your mm-hmm. readers here. Not everybody who reads this book is going to ultimately choose to go flat. And you have to find a way to talk about this material without getting so on your high horse about it that you're going to piss people off. And 
she was really right. And it took so many revisions. And I had like eight different readers who all were giving me input on various aspects of that chapter. Um, so it was an incredible amount of work. And it's my favorite chapter now. It's the one that I'm proudest of. Well, I can't wait to get to that one. Um, and just so you know, there is a podcast out there called Wine and Crime, and they sell uh, wine glasses that says fucking patriarchy on there. And I do have one. <laughs> <laughs> Might need that. Thank you. 100%. Um, I was with my husband. We went to a live show and he's like, you're buying that? I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on to how important it is to advocate for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I've mentioned this a couple of times, but why do you think it's really so important to stress that? I mean, you already mentioned a lot of the things that I also think about this, which we're trained to be nice. We're trained not to make waves, especially as women, but really everybody, when you get in front of that person with the white coat, who's supposed to know what they're talking about, we're kind of told to assume that they know best. But as you and I have certainly both learned, and a lot of people have learned, the healthcare system is big and messy and complex and and human needs can get lost in it very easily. No one is gonna be as focused on your needs as you are yourself. And as you were alluding to earlier, there are medical decisions and non-medical decisions and the lines can get blurred between those very easily when you're talking to a doctor. So it's really important to distinguish between advice that is from a medical professional and is medical in nature, and then advice that is really just a medical professional's opinion about what might be best for you. And the question of, are you going to be, are you going to feel whole if you don't have breast mound reconstruction is not something that any doctor can advise you on. Only you can answer that question for yourself. Well, and one thing I also want to stress too, even though you're going through treatment for cancer in your body, everything is a choice. Yeah. Yep. You know, y- yes, we, yes, we want the cancer out of our bodies, hands down, mm-hmm. but how you get there. Yes. The doctors can recommend this is the best option for you. This is the best thing to do, but yeah. chemo Still is a choice. Decision. Radiation yep. is a choice. Reconstruction. All of these things are a choice. So you need to be well-informed, which is so important to have books out there like yours giving options. And like, yeah. like Wendy mentioned, everyone is not going to read this book and say, Oh, Uh, the flat is the right for me. I am going to choose reconstruction. So, so important to take the time, which is incredibly hard when you receive a diagnosis, because all you can think about is I have cancer in my body and I'm going to die. Well, and also you've got so many choices to make that you get decision overload, right? So it's easy to say, oh, well, they know best. I'm just going to do what they tell me to do. And, and that can be a trap. Yes. One thing I was, well, I, I learned a lot of things in the book so far, but um, I had never heard of something called flat denial. What is that? Mm. Oh, it's bad. Well, okay. So I should say there is a spectrum on which flat denial sits. And some flat denial is, I would call mild and pervasive, which is just what happened to me essentially, which is a doctor who doesn't tell you that you have the option of going flat or who does not support your decision or who tries to persuade you not to go flat. So that happens all the time. What is more pernicious and- uh, Ooh, word, word points for that. <laughs> well, thank you. And you must be an common, author. <laughs> <laughs> write a little. Um, 
it, it's it's less common, a lot less common, um, but a lot more worrisome is when doctors deliver an incompetent closure, like we talked about with, you know, big dog ears, sloppy, baggy, uneven, you know, and that is, as I said, very common, like shockingly common. What is a lot less common than that is when doctors take it upon themselves. And I'd love to say that it almost never happens, but um, there's a flat advocacy organization called Not Putting on a Shirt that has done research on this. And apparently in about 5% of cases, a doctor will do what happened to the founder of that organization, which is she was going under anesthesia and she heard her doctor say at a moment when she was no longer capable of expressing anything, I'm just going to leave some extra skin in case you change your mind and decide to get reconstruction. Oh. And so she woke up having said, I want a single surgery. I want to be one and done. I want no additional work that needs to be done because I've got little kids and I need to get home to them. Um, she woke up with all of this extra skin and she went on a rampage. And that was how her organization got founded. And it's doing incredible work. Um, so flat denial, I believe, also came out of her organization. And the other thing that she has done on not putting on a shirt, she and her her team, they've created a directory of flat friendly surgeons. So if flat denial is something that's on your mind, either if you're explanting or if you're planning on having a mastectomy and going flat, um, and it should be on your mind. Um, this is a resource that you can go to and say, I want to find somebody in my state that will absolutely deliver um, the flat closure that I want. Now, should it be um, just, is it your standard breast surgeon or does it need to be a plastic surgeon who has um, specific training in this? You know, it's very often a breast surgeon who does it. Um, I think more and more we're going to see plastic surgeons getting involved. The problem right now is that they can't make anything like the kind of money doing an aesthetic flat closure that they can make doing breast mount reconstruction. So there's some stuff that needs to change. For most bodies, a, a, a well-trained breast surgeon can deliver a nice result. Sometimes it's more complicated and bringing in a plastic surgeon to consult and do the closure is a good idea. Okay. Good to know. So we do need to take another quick break, but we have so much more to talk about. So listeners, please stay with us. If you would like to be my guest or sponsor an episode or send me your warrior story to read on the show, I can be reached at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. Follow us on Twitter at Voice America TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN. Thank you for listening today. Breast Friends needs your support. We rely on donations to continue our mission that no woman goes through cancer alone and to keep the show going. Please consider making a tax-deductible donation to Breast Friends. You can text BF Radio to 41444 or visit us at breastfriends.org to donate. You can also like us on Facebook at Breast Friends of Oregon or follow us on Instagram at Breast Friends PDX. Be sure to tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time for Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. 
Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are tuned in to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. To reach the program today, please call us at 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. Now, back to the show. Thanks for staying with us. I'm Michelle Beck. My guest is Kat Van Dam, author of Flat and Happy, Mastectomy and Flat Closure, a personal practical guide. Now, Kat, for you, what has been the most surprising thing of deciding to go flat? Hmm. Uh, I, I think the biggest surprise is that I do not miss my breasts one bit. 100%. You made the right decision then. Yeah, I really did. I did a lot of soul searching before and a lot of like, um, preemptory mourning. I don't know how else to put that. Like I thought mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be in mourning. So I will mourn, uh, before my surgery. Because that's what society tells us to yeah, do. Yeah. Because this is so important, this flesh on my chest. Um, and I looked down after my surgery and went, oh, yeah, that's gone. And that looks pretty good. And that was the end of my breasts. And I have never missed them. The other thing that's very surprising is that nobody notices that I'm flat. I walk around flat as a board. I do not wear prostheses. I wear tight form fitting clothes. And I kept like having to out myself right after surgery. I'd say to people, oh, this thing happened to me because I was sure that they were looking at me like I was, I hate to say freak, right? That is such a pejorative word, but I I felt the stares in my head. Mm -hmm. The stares are non-existent. Nobody notices. Yes. Well, it's it's funny. I, uh, on one of my breasts, I've, on the left side, I've had the lumpectomy radiation and then mm. latissimus or latissimus back flap with my reconstruction, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And so that breast is shaped differently and it has a divot in it that I notice. Yep. No one else in the world no notices that, world. but me. And yep. like, I'm very cognizant because normally I don't wear a bra or I wear a tank. Um, but if I'm wearing like a shirt, that's more form fitted and my husband's like, it doesn't matter. No one is looking at that one part of your breast. I'm like, no not ever. even you. He goes, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> I am familiar with it. Yes. We're good. <laughs> now. So you, you made the right decision. You you're yeah. very you know happy with what you did, but were there any hard, unexpected, hard parts? I hate to say this because I know that my experience is not everyone's experience, but it, it was so easy for me. It, it was not hard. The, the hardest thing that I had to do was part with some clothes that I had emotional attachments to. Like there were a few really beautiful things that I looked at and said, this is no longer something I can wear. And that was like, it stung for a second, but no, it, it's really actually been great. And there's there's actually been a lot of benefits as far as I'm concerned. I, like you, never have to wear a bra again. I also never have any boob sweat. 
<laughs> I feel more comfortable in my body now than before, which is weird because, you know, I know people worry about being feeling less than if they lose their breasts. And I somehow have managed to come out of this feeling more than I feel like a badass having made this decision that I'm very happy with. I, I have this thing I've noticed recently. I've developed this gesture that I would never have made when I had breasts, which is that if I'm talking about something and I want to convey this idea that like, this is something I feel deeply, or this is something that needs to have this real emotional resonance, I'll like, I'll take my hands and I'll sort of plaster them to my flat bony little chest. And this gesture I realized is sort of like a weird symbol for me of how losing those layers of tissue has allowed me to be closer to my own emotional core. I know that's not literally true, but on some gestural level, that actually feels true. It, because you, you made a challenging decision that mm. was hundred percent right for you, but it gives you strength. Yeah. Like you could yeah. do a whole TEDx talk on that. And, and that would be, I, I would sign up for that one for sure. All right, let's do it. <laughs> How did you learn to dress yourself? Because mm. women's tops, dresses, everything is made for breast mounds. Yep. What did you do? You know, uh, that is true. And also it turns out that a lot of things that women with breasts can wear still look great on a flat body. So most of my winter clothing is no problem. I can wear every sweater I owned previously. Mm -hmm. They still all work on me great. Summer clothing bathing suits, the bathing suit shopping for the first time is, is the, you know, the universal yeah. dreaded moment for anybody who goes flat. Um, summer clothes are harder. It really comes down to the question of, well, okay. So first of all, if you wear prostheses, which I do not, um, even that problem mostly addresses itself because you're still filling out the same shape yep. that you were filling out before. You might choose to size up or size down. So you might need to make some adjustments to your wardrobe if you feel like playing around with the size of your prostheses. But for the most part, you can still wear even something that's got like darts. I cannot wear something with darts because they just go boop off of my chest. That is not a good look. Um, I'm fine with losing darts in my, in my wardrobe. So for me, I, I do different things on different days. I sometimes wear something that is more camouflaging of my flatness. And for that, something like an asymmetrical neckline or a busy pattern or I'm not a ruffle person myself, but mm. there are tops with ruffles that do a great job of camouflaging. And then on other days, I'm just about like celebrating my flatness and I'll wear something, as I said, just totally form fitting. Mm -hmm. My husband has a, has a nickname for me that he coined after my surgery, which is minnow. So sometimes I really embrace my inner minnow and I just, you know, swim through life in mm -hmm. my little flat chest. Um, You're like, I'm a badass. This is what it is. And if you don't accept it, it, I don't care. Yeah. I will say because I'm bilaterally flat, my fashion options are somewhat different than they would be for somebody who is a uni, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for instance, I gather that women who are unilaterally flat can still sometimes wear things that expose cleavage because they've still got some cleavage to show off. On the other hand, there are some things like asymmetry that work really well on a, a chest that's completely flat that maybe gets pulled out of proportion or just looks off on a, on a unilaterally flat chest. So there's definitely a learning curve and you got to just try on everything. Yeah. One woman who was uh, my friend, who was my guest um, last year, she is flat and she's actually working on starting her own clothing company called uh, Bayo breasts are overrated for, uh -huh. for women who are flat oh, and it. which I love. And um, 
this is literally my, my brain doesn't work sometimes. The editor of Wildfire Magazine, I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with yeah, that. Yeah, I listened to that episode. Uh, she is unilaterally flat yep. and she did a beautiful uh, photo shoot of, 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 you know, her, her flat breast. Oh, it was yeah. just it was stunning. Yeah. So um, there's so many things out there, especially in the cancer community that you just connect and it, it really, it fills your soul. Mm. 100%. Um, so is it possible we're going to kind of go back to the um, uh, medical aspect of it for a minute to if you have an aesthetic flat closure and you're like, oh gosh, it doesn't work. It doesn't really work for you. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to, to go back and have reconstruction later on? It generally is. Yes. I mean, I, I can't say for every single person that will be possible. I think in most cases at that point, what's recommended is an autologous procedure of some kind. So again, it's going to come down to how much spare flesh do you have on your body that you can sacrifice to rebuilding those breasts. Um, Expander implant reconstruction may also be possible, not for everyone. There are some things that can can contribute to um, making that more difficult. So obviously, if, if you're if you're expanding from an existing skin envelope, you have to push often the muscle out and the skin out to accommodate that implant. But if you are completely flat you obviously are gonna have to push a lot more and a lot longer and a lot harder to create enough space for that Mm -hmm. implant. Um, And also if you've had radiation, now uh, most women who have mastectomies do not need radiation, but some do. And if you've had radiation, obviously that will mean that your skin no longer has the flexibility. So you would not be able to do expander based reconstruction. Is there anything you would choose to do differently now that you've been through this journey? Oh, huh. Um, there are a few things I would do differently. I, I would have advocated for myself much more strenuously. I probably would have taken a little bit more time choosing a surgeon. I kind of went with a surgeon that might, as I, as I said, I really love my primary care physician. And when she said, go see this person, that's what I did. In retrospect, one of the doctors who consulted on the book for me, um, you know, she reviewed early drafts and she was very helpful in telling me about the different surgical techniques for going flat. I'm digressing. She said at one point, the thing about breast surgery is there's a lot of doctoring. Like the being a good surgeon part is important, but being a compassionate person who wants to do all of that doctoring as well um, is, is a huge part of what makes somebody a wonderful breast surgeon. And my surgeon is very interested in um, removing cancer from people's bodies. And I'm just gonna leave it at that. So I might've done a little bit more research into that. I would have advocated for myself more strenuously. I also would have been a little gentler in the way I announced my decision to people like my dad, who, you know, was kind of like, wait, what, you're doing what? If I had Mm -hmm. talked him through that in a way that allowed him to have the same set of facts that I was working from, that would have been a kinder thing to do. Understood. Well, I want to talk really quick about too, that you are going through this in a long-term relationship. You've been mm-hmm. with your, your partner for decades, it sounds like. Yeah. And so it wasn't a choice of, oh my gosh, I'm going to be dating after this, but how did it affect your, your sexuality? Because it, as, as women breasts are definitely a big part of that. Um, if you're open to talking about that, what was that like for you? I'm, I'm going to say I'm semi-open to talking about that. Sure. <laughs> um, 
So here's the good news. My husband is an ass man. <laughs> um, it was not a big deal for either of us. Mm-hmm. I, I was fine with my breasts. I liked them okay. I wasn't somebody who was like, oh, my breasts are hideous. I also did not love my breasts and they were not a huge focus of my erotic life, let's say. So that adjustment was easier than you might expect. Well, also for me, I, I have very little sensation. So exactly. they're well, not- right. It's not like reconstruction is gonna help you enjoy more sexual pleasure. For, for yes. Part, except for those sensation sparing techniques, which they are still working on and, you know, they're a bit of a mixed bag. Still. Yeah, that would be amazing. But yeah. it really is post any kind of a mastectomy, it it changes and you really have to figure out, you know, if, if that was super important to you, different ways of intimacy. Yeah, exactly. um, but I, I will say being in a long term relationship makes that a lot easier. But, you know, if you're out there and you're dating, finding the right person means that they'll they'll get it. Yep. And, you know, you just have to have faith in that and doing what is best for you and your body is the most important thing yeah. going forward. Gosh, we are almost out of time. Oh, no. So I wanted to really talk real quickly because, um, gosh, we have like literally a minute in New York. There's a bill that's going on that mm. is going to be really helpful for women who go flat. And hopefully that could be, you know, something that could travel across the country. Tell us about that real quick. Ooh, okay, I'll try to do the 10 second version of this. There is a federal law that was enacted in the late 90s called the Women's Health and Cancer Rights Act, WHCRA, that guarantees that anybody having reconstruction, that that will be covered by insurance. What it does not cover is chest wall reconstruction. So the New York State bill, which again was the, the work of the advocacy community, um, is inserts or chest wall reconstruction into the wording of the New York bill so that that will be covered by insurance. And that means that hopefully doctors will invest in a proper closure because they're being compensated for it. And it just helps educate everyone. So it's it's pretty great stuff. Hopefully, fingers crossed that that goes forward and that continues to move across the country. So really quick, where can our listeners find out about you, the book, all of the things? Mm. Uh, uh, My website is katrinvandam.com. I'm a little bit on social media. I'm on Instagram at at katvandambooks. Yeah, that's, that's really the main stuff. Well, Kat, thank you so much for being here today. It has been my pleasure and learning and talking about such an important thing. So thank you again for being here. Oh my gosh, thank you. It was such a delight to talk to you. And thank you so much for the work that you do every day. Well, thank you. So listeners, again, you can find everything at Katrin Van Dam, LinkedIn, also Instagram, Kat Van Dam Books. So if you or your loved ones need our services, please go to breastfriends.org and check us out. You can donate on our website or by texting BF Radio to 41444. You can find us on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel, Audible, wherever you get your podcasts, and also watch on the Breast Friends YouTube. YouTube channel, please make sure to subscribe. If you would like to nominate yourself to be my guest or just contact me, I'm at Michelle Beck at breastfriends.org. We will be back next week. And until then, remember, we rise by lifting each other. Thank you for listening to Breast Friends Cancer Support Network. Please join Michelle Beck again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We rise by lifting each other.